Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. John Taylor fled to a welcoming St. George in 2018 to escape California's foul air. A graduate of New York University, writing letters to the editor helped launch a 30-year career as a newspaper reporter and editor, especially relished covering religion, health care, and education. A native of Brooklyn, he's a fan of the Yankees, the Packers, and Fresno State, roughly aligning with where he's worked as a journalist and until retirement as a public affairs director for nonprofit community medical centers in Fresno. He and his wife Judy, a retired teacher, relish chatting with everyone they meet, helping address community needs such as homelessness and discovering the special pleasures of being Utahns. John Taylor brings a charming outsider's view of Utah. He'll be sharing his perspectives in regular commentaries on UPR. And uh, today on the program, we'll hear his first commentary, get to know him a little bit. That's the first half of the program. The second half, uh, we'll revisit a fascinating conversation from 2011 with photographer Paul Nicklin. Paul Nicklin grew up near the Arctic Circle on Baffin Island, and his photographs appear in National Geographic magazine and many other places. And we'll hear him recount some of his hair-raising adventures. So before we bring in John Taylor, I wanted to uh, hear, give you a little taste of him, his very first commentary. Uh, let's uh, hear this first. Two years ago, my wife and I moved to St. George. California's air pollution had gotten that bad, and southwest Utah was that welcoming. Our California families, however, thought we were loony. You're not Mormon, and you don't know a soul there. Dad, you're a retired, retired journalist with a ponytail and a Brooklyn accent. Three strikes right there. We visited for a week in May, bought a house in June, and moved in July. Fast forward, would we have made the same decision today in this age of masks? How do you do hands-on homework in a world of keep-your-distance signs, plastic partitions, antiseptic baths, and elbow bumps in lieu of hugging your grandkids? We can't breeze into museums, restaurants, or church, And we can't stroll into Dixie Regional Medical Center like two lost souls waiting to see who'll steer us to the cafeteria. Still, the basic questions haven't changed. Where's good Italian food? Why are so many stores closed on Sundays? And my wife just broke a tooth. Who could help her today? The pandemic is a time to stream, dream, and scheme. You can do virtual tours and drone flyovers on the Internet. You can find someone's top reasons why you should or shouldn't live here. Temperatures are high, crime's low, population's growing, but the water supply isn't. The jaw-dropping scenery makes drivers do insane things. Masks make it harder to detect a welcoming smile, so engage strangers with your eyes, the tone of your voice, and your body language. Do your homework at the pandemic's essential places, grocers, pharmacies, hardware stores, and Michaels. Southwest Utah is chock full of polite, engaging people. If you want to live here, invest in the pioneer experience. Instead of flying into Vegas, which is two hours drive from St. George, make Salt Lake City your entry. The views on the five-hour drive are amazing. Stop for gas in Nephi. Grab a burger in Beaver. Chat with everybody. And when you get here, give me a call. From St. George, this is John Taylor, wishing you a joyful day. And we have John Taylor on the line. Uh, Welcome to the program. Good morning, Tom, and top of the day to my fellow Utahns. So you are a Utah now since 2018. Uh, Now in in the uh, commentary there, it sounds like you and your wife made that decision pretty quickly. Uh, That's exactly true. the, the air wasn't as bad as it is in California now, but it was bad enough two years ago. And I had a friend who lived in Mesquite, and I said, where the heck is Mesquite? One thing led to another. We started doing homework in the region, found out that the climate in St. George and the air quality were to our liking. And we decided, you know what, it's time to roll the dice. And we're not gamblers, but we are in the sense of where we take our lives' journey. And uh, St. George delivered, and it still is, and we're trying to do, give back a little bit along the way. Yeah, before we get into a little bit of your biography, which is a fascinating biography, uh, I want to talk a little bit about that. You you, uh, you say, you know, it, it's hard to connect. We can't hug each other. we got the masks on, but there are things we can do to connect. Oh, absolutely. Um, if you haven't learned Zoom, you should. Uh, it might help if you have a good backdrop. Uh, people like to see where you are or aren't. 
Uh, it also helps uh, to find out through whatever social media sources. The needs in the community don't go away. So uh, if you reach out, uh, all of a sudden people who never answered emails uh, answer emails. So you and your wife, you, you've uh, tried to jump right into the community, and, and that includes uh, helping improve the community, uh, needs such as homelessness. My, my wife, Judy, um, has always been, what are we giving back? So when we were looking at coming out here, she had been making scars and, and caps uh, for church groups and various other charities over the years in our 40-plus years together in Fresno. And uh, so she brought a, a stack of caps with us when we moved out here. And uh, walked, we went into Switchpoint, which is a local homeless shelter, and met the folks there and have continued to be supportive of them during this time. And, and the same for other charities, including uh, uh, an, annual ho- an annual fundraiser for the Shivwitz tribe of the Paiute Band, Paiute tribe of Indians, um, which is done through uh, M&S Turquoise in downtown uh, for uh, St. George. But that was homework on her, so she's gotten the reputation of being called Sister Scarf because of all the, the goodies she's created for charity. So some... In a lot of ways, Tom, I've written her her coattails, um, but we're both kind of like chat and chew, and that's kind of like the way people are in Utah, by and large. You budget a little extra time to meet people and uh, get engaged, and that's true whether you're going to a, um, a resort or whether you're going to pick up groceries at Walmart. Yeah, well, we'll do good on you both. That's wonderful. Jump in and get engaged there. Um, so you're a graduate of New York University. You write in your bio, writing letters to the editor helped launch your 30-year career as a newspaperman. Uh, tell us about that. Well, when, when you're homesick as a kid and you're reading something that upset you, in this case, I was about uh, 17 and I was was homesick, and there was uh, a memorial in France for the first American soldier who was killed uh, liberating uh, Paris. And as fate would have it, unfortunately, uh, he was shot by a partisan who didn't realize it was an American. So uh, the French used to have a memorial for him every year, and I got word that the memorial was being canceled, and I uh, trumpeted a little outrage in this little 30,000 circulation newspaper in Brooklyn, New York. And uh, they ran the letter, and the State Department responded, and pretty soon I realized there is room in the world for people, uh, little kernels of corn to make uh, a little bit of noise uh, for the right reason. So after that, it went from there, letters to the editor, uh, writing when I was in college as a correspondent for the New York Times, which was when you realize that not every everything you write is golden and not everything you write is red, the same way you wrote it. Uh, so wherever I went as a, as a journalist, I always tried to stretch the fabric a little bit when I worked in Milwaukee. I wound up working on a dairy farm, so I understand the state a little bit better. And that's kind of the way we, we've moved wherever we've gone. It's kind of like plunge in. Uh, even in retiring, Tom, when we were looking for places to retire, we went to a couple of places in the Northwest and spent a week there. But the week we spent in St. George and Southwest Utah was so illuminating and engaging uh, and trying to realize that, you know, there, there still is. Uh, there still are areas of the country where there's uh, uh, cleanliness, um, parental accountability, and and folks who, uh, if you let your hair down a little bit, will meet you more than halfway. Yeah, and that, I think we're losing that somewhat in a lot of areas in the country, right? Absolutely, and it's sad. You know, when I first moved to California. It was the it was 1981, and people in Fresno, which then was a small town of about uh, 200,000, uh, when they wanted to cross the street, uh, people with the cane would raise the cane and expect traffic to stop for them. Well, the town now is closer to 600,000, three times the population when we got there. Uh, you you, uh, you don't need to meet the trauma center that way anymore. Uh, and uh, you got to know somebody to start a conversation. It's uh, unfortunate, but true. To the good side, we still keep in touch with our friends in Wisconsin on the dairy farm and, you know, hear about 
when they're not happy with the Packers, and we keep in touch with friends uh, back uh, in New England who, unfortunately, are Red Sox fans, but we find out how they're doing. <laughs> so it's a matter of sustaining engagement where you can, and that's always worked for us, and we've certainly enjoyed uh, Southwest Utah, and we expect that as soon as we all get over uh, this this horrid virus, that uh, people need to be reminded that the, do- the open door is still real important. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me about what, what's maybe a couple highlights from your time at the Fresno Bee. You, you spent about twenty years uh, there, right? It, it was a great time, a great time, and a great place to raise uh, my kids. Uh, and all of our family is still in California, doing the best they can. I've got school teachers and uh, former police officers and and other kinds of uh, uh, public service kind of jobs in the family. Uh, Getting getting to know the community kind of accelerated when I decided to leave management and go back to being a reporter. Um, the the diversity of, of religions, for example, in Central California is huge, and I tried to do what I could as the religion reporter for six years to make sure that the door was open for everybody, regardless of their religious persuasion. Not everybody was terribly thrilled about that, uh, but it was a wonderful way to engage. There were so many hundreds of differences of houses of worship and differences of perspective that um, getting engaged meant I had to learn, and it meant uh, trying to make sure that the fairness, which sometimes seems missing from a lot of uh, news columns these days, was maintained. Uh, I, I started a, a viewpoints column where I'd ask questions of religious leaders and uh, get their viewpoints. And uh, stirred a hornet's nest one time when the question I asked was, how do you know there is no God? Um, and I asked three folks who are uh, either agnostics or atheists for their response. And, of course, the next week I was going to ask, uh, how do you know there is a God? But I've got so many hundreds of letters saying, how dare you, you know, we're a a believing community, how dare you ask that question? But they didn't wait for the other side of the coin, which is, how do you know there is a God? (laughs) So the rest of the questions were not quite as pointed over the several years that I did it, but it it got people engaged in the process of understanding, and uh, that's kind of the way we live here. We've tried to come to understand who we are in the, context, in the context of the community in which we live. Uh, and um, it, it's, uh, it's a good time to be learning, and if you're looking at the four walls and wondering what you should be doing among the things that are on my to-do list, or to try to learn Spanish and to read as much uh, Utah history until I can actually go out and talk to people who have lived and who are themselves the purveyors of Utah history, which is but I hope as soon as we can get the masks off. Yeah, interesting. Uh, so you, you you want to dive in, uh, learn the history. I guess a lot of people move into whatever place, uh, don't don't bother to do that. That's uh, I think that's commendable. That's one of the things that I hope with this commentary to uh, awaken the people who are newcomers and saying, you know, it's, it's a great place to live. Utah as a whole is, but down here is extra special. It's a time to awaken people to say, you know, you're here. What is it that you're bringing? What's your gift? And if my abilities as a storyteller uh, help at all in making people go out and seek and learn and engage, um, that's what I'd like to. Most of the people I, I know uh, in St. George are either longtime uh, residents or people who've been here uh, in the last 15 years. Uh, uh, so, um, there's no welcome wagon as such, but perhaps illuminating people with a commentary now and again will help facilitate that. Do you think that background in uh, you know writing about religion? Do you think that helped you at all coming to a state with a uh, you know a unique predominant uh, religion, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints? A- absolutely true, um, and I was always one who believed and still do keep the door open. There, there's more than one way to, to solve the Rubik's Cube of life. And um, when, when, when the first uh, temple was being built uh, for the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints in Fresno, 
um, uh, it was a unique time to in- introduce that to a community that uh, had a, a fair amount of uh, LDS population, but was a long way from being the top three faiths in the region. Uh, and it 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 um, it was my task as a journalist to be as fair as I could and to invite people to understand that which to some was incomprehensible and that which was to others uh, something that they were not fond of. Uh, so you just try to be even-toned. Uh, and I can say, since we've moved here, we have some some wonderful uh, Mormon neighbors who've engaged with us. And uh, with one of two of our trips out the, the door to look for uh, interesting sites within the day have been to Mountain Meadows Massacre site, which is uh, takes us back to a chapter of, of history around 1857. So we're trying to learn more and trying to do more. Uh, a week ago, we were we took our first little jailbreak uh, of the year, and probably our only from the southwest Utah, went over to Capitol Reef. And in going through some of those small towns, uh, Loa and Kusharam, these are the towns that, you know, when they see the, the cafe light open and they're going to serve berry pie, you want to go in there. But gosh darn it, because of all what's going on now, uh, you're kind of uh, self-restrained from doing that. So it's another one of those things that next time, when the time is right, uh, knock on the door, say hello. Uh, we try to do it in small ways here. We have a, a bookstore in, in Hurricane we go to called the Book Arbor, and wandering around a jam-packed used bookstore and chatting and chewing with Margaret, who runs the store. That's what it's all about. If that's the small steps you can take right now, go for it. Viewers joined us. We're talking with John Taylor. Um, he and his wife, uh, Judy, moved to Utah a couple of years ago from uh, California. Um, and John Taylor be uh, uh, sharing his perspectives and regular commentaries on Utah Public Radio. We heard the first one at the beginning of the program today. Um, a few more minutes with John Taylor here, and then we're going to hear from photographer Paul Nicklin. Um so uh, we won't discuss this, but just just to tease your next commentary, which we'll hear next month, uh, you have a, a you discovered you have a famous name in in <laughs> LDS circles, right? So we'll we'll, it, it we'll leave that. It was a wonderful gateway to to yeah. come in and say, oh yeah, uh, instead of being just another John in the neighborhood, uh, there there was history attached to that and gateways attached to it, and uh, I'm not sure that I've seen the end of it, and I sure hope I haven't. And, and uh, that's what it's all about. It all starts with saying hello, and you can like it do that at, at Walmart. It doesn't matter. Uh, you know, sometimes people. Yesterday, I was in Walmart and I saw this young lady. I said, "Wow, that's a great tattoo you have on your arm." And she told me the story of having gotten it for for her memory of her grandmother who had uh, died of an undiagnosed illness, and this was her memorial. But it's just. In those two or three minutes when you're getting your receipt, that's what you do. You get to know, and all of a sudden, you give them the smiling eyes. Smile with your eyes now. That's the way to get all the conversation started. It's about five minutes left here. Um, so the next thing you did, you left the newspaper world, uh, became public affairs director for uh, community medical centers in, in Fresno. Tell me a little bit about about that transition. Healthcare was part of my uh area of coverage for a while at the Fresno Bee, and uh, during that time, uh, the county hospital was getting out of the hospital business and assigning the business to a a non-profit hospital system, and uh, I decided uh, that I wanted the rest of my career pointed to public advocacy and working for a non-profit hospital, the only level one burn and trauma center between uh, Los Angeles and Sacramento, which is a huge region. Um, was going to be what I wanted to do. So I spent the last 15 years of my career advocating for that hospital, getting to know some of the ins and outs of the politics of health care. Uh, sometimes you <clears throat> had to take a second shower in the day because the, the dealings can get a little dirty. Mm. But uh, journalism is not advocacy, but when you move into an advocate role, it brings you another opportunity to get involved. So um, communicating on behalf of the single uh, largest healthcare provider in Central California was an education for me. And you got to show the flag to make sure people don't 
view the central part of California, which is kind of the breadbasket of the world, only from 30,000 feet. And so it was my privilege to do that. And uh, and hopefully all of our institutions, including Intermountain and others that we have in Utah, will uh, will continue to bear up best they can on this. And if I can say a few kind words on their behalf, I'd say wear masks. Yeah, yeah, that's the most important thing, right? Wear a mask. Um, and, and then you uh, formed your own company, right? The JT Communications uh, Company. Is that still a going concern? You're still doing a bit with that? I, I, that, that shingle is still out there, uh, but I'm more interested right now in, in doing pro bono work. And if, if I can find some people who want to work on a book and they need an editor, I've done that. That would be terrific. But in the meantime, it's, it's an avenue, it's a placeholder for me to make sure people know that uh, there's a diversity of opinion on there, and my goal is I'm not about to 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 be a, a scold or a nag unless I can offer some empowerment to the people who are my listeners or my readers and give them tools to get engaged. We've got enough purple-faced bluster out there now. We need some people who can say, hey, there's a reason to live this morning, and that's what I try to do. It's <laughs> a good way to describe it, purple-faced bluster. There's a lot of that out there. Um, and, and we'll, we'll need to all try to hold hands and get through the next couple of months safely here. It's going to be turbulent. Um, so jtcommunicates.com is a place to find that you have a blog there. I just wanted to end with this, uh, this is interesting to me, uh, you have a blog post, uh, empowering yourself for a hospital visit. And you talk about it in, in, in the era of pandemic. What if you'd say a little bit about that? Absolutely. Well, most people, including my own family members, I had a list of things they've ha- that have happened to them and a list of medications and things that have occurred in their lifetimes. Uh, about time to put those on a list, even though most hospitals now have electronic records. They're not necessarily accessible if you're in one system. The, the record that they have may not talk to another system. So we, we my wife Judy and I, have created a, a, a red folder that we take with us wherever we go, and it's a printout of, whatever medical procedures we have, whatever medications we are on, or any sensitivities we have. If you have a sensitivity of cinnamon, maybe you better let the dentist know that they shouldn't be flossing your teeth with uh, cinnamon-flavored dental floss. So having those things in hand in a red folder, especially when you have these tragedies, these horrific fires come out of nowhere, grab the red folder, have a getaway bag, it will facilitate not only what the kind of care you might get in a hospital if you're crammed in there with other people, but your memory flags when you're under stress. You might have a, oh, my gosh, moment. Is that really the person I'm married to? What's her social security number? What's her birth date? That's the kind of things you can do and have handy. Um, and hospitals appreciate that. There's a time to say no when you're in a hospital. And it, it may not be the time when you're conscious enough to say no, but your records can help speak for you. That's one little thing I would always suggest people put together and have with their get-to-go bag. Well, we reached the, uh, the end of our time here. Uh, very interesting to, and great to get to know you, uh, John. We'll begin to know you through your commentaries. Uh, John Taylor and his wife, uh, as he says, fled to a welcoming St. George in 2018 to escape uh, California's foul air, and they've been... Uh, uh, very pleased with their their surroundings there, and they're, they're getting uh, to know the community, getting to be a part of the community. We're going to be hearing uh, John Taylor's perspectives and regular commentaries on UPR, and uh, we heard his first commentary today. The next one's coming up uh, next month uh, during this program, Access Utah. Well, John Taylor, it's uh, great to have you aboard the, the, the UPR uh, team. Well, thank you so much, Tom. I look forward to getting to know you and my fellow Utahns uh, better in the coming months and years, and I hope you all have a joyful day. All right, you too. Uh, well, after a break, we're going to uh, reach back in the archives, a fascinating conversation with photographer Paul Nicklin. Uh, Paul Nicklin grew up near the Arctic Circle on Baffin Island. His photographs appear in the National Geographic magazine and other places. So we'll hear him recount some of his hair-raising adventures following this. America, are we ready for this election? This is Brian Lehrer from WNYC. Join me, my guests, and listeners from around the country for a live conversation about the economy and the election. Can the middle class in America be saved? Will young voters have what their parents have? Do their parents even have enough? 
The election is coming soon. America, now's the time to talk about the economy, jobs, and our expectations. This evening, beginning at 7, here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're now going to reach back in the archives and revisit a conversation with uh, photographer Paul Nicklin, which was first broadcast in uh, 2011. Thanks for staying with us through the break. And we're going to be talking in this part of the program with photographer Paul Nicklin who uh, has published several articles and, uh, of course, uh, many photographs in the National Geographic magazine. Paul Nicklin grew up in uh, the far north part of Canada on Baffin Island in the Arctic uh, Circle and was fascinated by the wildlife there. Uh, He uh, went on to get a a degree in uh, wildlife biology but uh, decided to uh, go into photography, and he's had some wonderful adventures, and you can see his uh, stunning photographs at paulnicklin.com, and we'll get him to tell us some of his adventures, including a ride on the back of a bowhead wheel, whale and uh, a uh, days-long interaction with potentially dangerous leopard seal. Paul Nicklin, welcome to the program. Thanks very much for having me. Appreciate you taking the time to be with us. The latest book is uh, Polar Obsession, um, and uh, one of the uh, your stated goals in your photography is to preserve these uh, fragile ecosystems. Talk about the Arctic and Antarctic, and uh, maybe a good place to start uh, is your childhood. You grew up in, in Baffin Island. This is, uh, I guess, near or in the Arctic Circle. That's correct. It's just below the Arctic Circle, but if you get on a, a big airline jet out of Montreal and you fly for three hours straight north, you'll land on a, uh, a large island, uh, windswept, no tree island, and we lived in a community uh, with 140 or 150 Inuit people called Kimarut, and uh, we were one of the few non-Inuit families living on that island, so we had direct immersion into the Arctic and its culture, so it was a great way to get my feet on the ground in the north. What, what was your family doing up there? Uh, my mom was a school teacher, but mainly we went because my dad was a, uh, a heavy-duty mechanic, and he was there to keep the local heavy equipment running and the generators to keep the town running and, and uh, various jobs like that. So no television, no radio, no computer games? Yeah, that was the beauty of it, was yeah. you know, to have no television, no, no radio, no distractions, obviously no computers back then. And so all of our entertainment, all of our fun, all of our playtime was spent outside in the snow, in the ice, connecting with the environment. And at the time, we were just having fun. But I did not realize that every second we were out there playing, we were actually learning essential survival skills to surviving in, in that type of environment. Learning from the, uh, the Inuit as well, I guess. Uh, everything the, from uh, wildlife behavior to, to survival skills. Yeah, the Inuit are amazing teachers, and they actually don't teach like we do. We don't, they don't sit there and lecture someone on what to do. They, they'll put you in situations, and you know, they'll put you on thin ice, and you'll fall through the ice and into the water and, and experience. You know, and the, after that lesson, you learn that you never do that again. And, and they had great stories like of the sea monsters, Kadlupidlu, the uh, she was a monster that had a big hood on her uh, parka with a hood on it, and if you got too close to the ice, she would come up and take you down and drown you and eat you. And that was just to tell us kids to stay away from, you know, the the dangerous ice and 
but they also taught you how to read the weather and, and, and survive storms and build snow shelters from right from the time you're five years old. So hmm. it's, uh, it was great training. You write on your website that uh, you didn't know it at the time, but the seed was being planted uh, to become a nature photographer later. Oh, definitely. And I always had a strong visual appreciation for the, the polar regions for, you know, the, the beautiful, subtle lights, the tones off the, the sea ice. And, and you know, I, I just, my mother was a photographer as well when I grew up there. So it was, uh, she was always, you know, watching the magic unfold in the dark room uh, in this tiny island. Uh, and seeing the beauty that she was making was really inspirational for me as a kid as well. The, the, the tremendous opportunity. I don't know if you saw it that way as a kid, but uh, you know most of us won't ever even get to go to Baffin Island, and, and you grew up there. Um, uh, you write that uh, you you went on to study marine biology, University of Victoria, but uh, and you did work in the field for a while, but uh, decided to, to get into photography. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, the University of Victoria was great. Uh, and I got my degree, went back up there, got a really good job as a biologist. I was living my dream. I was, you know, out, out tagging polar bears on the sea ice and, you know, gone for six months and seeing incredible things. And But I felt extremely helpless at the, at the end of a, say, three-month expedition of seeing 100 polar bears and tagging them and coloring them, measuring them and weighing them and pulling a tooth and finding out how old they were. At the end of the day, I realized all we had was a data set, you know, a whack of papers that was mostly used for internal use. And then with government, there's internal fighting and fighting and people not sharing their data. And it just left me feeling really helpless. You saw the change that was going on. The Inuit were already starting to talk about the change that was going on in the Arctic, the effects on polar bear populations and whatnot. And I thought, you know, what better can I reach the masses of people? And I thought, if I could become a photojournalist and bridge the gap between the good science that the scientists are doing and the general public... But in a magazine like National Geographic magazine, here now you have the chance to tell your story and reach 40 million people with one article. Hmm. There's a lot of work to do uh, to uh, to to bridge that gap. Uh, this subject has been uh, extremely politicized, at least in the United States. Uh, tell us your experiences. You have seen significant changes at the at the polar regions. Oh, I've definitely seen significant changes, and I'm the same way as everybody else. I mean, and that's the problem right now with with why no change is really happening or people aren't really acting on it is that we know we, we've become inundated with this, this debate in the newspaper. And for myself, while people are debating in the newspaper, I'm up there with the inode on the sea ice. We're traveling and they're saying, you know, we can no longer travel there. We traveled there for 200 years. The ice is no longer there. When I worked in Svalbard, Norway, um, you know, we had, we had to put our story on hold for five years because there just wasn't any sea ice in the wintertime anymore where the polar bears traditionally are. All the polar bears were stranded on land. And then my guide and I decided to push it one day to uh, get out to a place where the bears were. We, we fell through the ice a couple times. It was extremely dangerous. And then three days after I went home, he went back out on the sea ice with another group, and he actually went through in a snow machine and died uh, and drowned mm. and, and from hypothermia in the water. And it's just, I mean, these examples are everywhere. I just lost another good friend of mine who's a top-notch hunter on Baffinon who went through the ice. And the Inuit are actually losing the platform from which that they survive. And so... If they're doing that, you see that with the polar bears as well. Their their polar bear populations are in decline. Um, the ice is breaking up in different places every year. It's breaking up earlier. It's freezing later. I mean, it's uh, when you get up there and actually see it, the change is overwhelming, and it's happening way faster than any, anyone ever thought. And uh, over what period of time have you uh, witnessed uh, this uh, these significant changes? Well, because of my age, I'm you know, I'm 40 years old, and and it's you know by the time I sort of grew a brain when I was in my 20s and 30s and just sort of, you know, got over myself and realized that there's this big world out there is sort of right when I started noticing it and hearing it and actually sitting down and having the, the time to sit down with the Inuit and hear their stories. So it's been going on for the last 20, 30 years, but the scientists, you know, everyone was reluctant to even mention it, whether it was a natural cycle or not, up until 10, 15 years ago. I worked with a great group of scientists 15 years ago or 12 years ago, and they were all a little bit scared to say it. Now I can go back to any one of those world's top-notch climatologists and climate change scientists, and they will, they're just saying, we're in trouble, we're the cause, and it's happening now, it's happening faster than we thought. We could see an ice-free Arctic in the next 5 to 15 to 20 years. Originally, they were saying it would be an ice-free Arctic in the next 100 years. Uh, mm. So it's, it's, uh, it's definitely accelerated way beyond what, what uh, people thought. And the big question is, is it past the point of no return right now? No matter what we do, can we, can we save this ice? Mm -hmm. uh, what would be the consequence of an ice-free Arctic? Well, that's what my whole message is, and that's what my new book, Polar Obsession, is all about. I want people to sit down, not think too much, you know, just put away the newspapers, open up this book, and realize that 
when they look at this book of all the animals that I've been photographing and all the ecosystems from the, from the tiny shrimp-like copepods and amphipods right up to the sexy megafauna like the polar bears and the bowhead whales, that because of the lives that generally people are living in the South and China and around the world, that we stand to lose everything between these two covers. If we lose ice, we stand to lose an entire ecosystem. And that's where the trends are headed, both in the Arctic and Antarctica. And so what I want to do with my photography is make it very visceral, very real, very intimate and personal. And I want to, because people aren't going to go to these places. Not many people are going to go to Antarctica and jump in the water with a leopard seal or go up and swim with narwhals. It's, it's challenging. It's hard. It's dangerous. So I want to transport the readers and the viewers through these pages, have the pictures so visual, so strong that they, they'll feel like they're there themselves. And ultimately, I want them to understand the message and hopefully care alongside with me uh, that we stand to lose these ecosystems. This part of Access Utah, we're talking with photographer Paul Nicklin. Uh, he has done uh, many articles for uh, National Geographic and uh, more to come, uh, I understand. And uh, his latest book is uh, Polar Obsession. And uh, he is, he says, uh, attempting to, to bridge that gap between the, the what's going on in the Arctic and Antarctic and, and the, uh, the public's consciousness of it and uh, maybe uh, make some changes that way. Uh, you can see uh, some of his uh, spectacular photographs at his website, paulnicklin.com. You mentioned the Antarctic as well. You've done work there. Uh, what changes have you seen in the Antarctic over the time you've been working? Well, the Antarctic is is very similar in that I mean they're they're two different ecosystems, um, you know, worlds apart, but uh, made up the same, of the same cast of characters. And in the Arctic, what you have is you have when you have a really bad sea ice year, you have a very low production of copepods and amphipods, and ultimately that's what is the foundation of the food chain that feeds all the, the the life above it. Well, if you go down to Arctica, Antarctica, it's even more so where you have got krill. On a bad krill year, bad ice year, you have a bad krill year, which ultimately is feeds all the penguins and the seals, crab eater seals and leopard seals. And so right now they're seeing a decline in, in sea ice, which is correlating with a decline in penguin populations. And, I mean, it's not this perfect cycle that people want it to be, but it's, you know, it's in some places, uh, you know, even in the Arctic, there's a couple spots where polar bears are actually doing fairly well. But the general trend across the Arctic is polar bears are declining. And it's the same with Antarctica. It's the general trend that we, that, that, uh, penguins are on a sharp decline, as well as other species. And what also hits you hard about Antarctica is you've got this massive ice cap. And you go through these places that traditionally you could easily go through in a sailboat, and now you're just blown away by the beauty of all these icebergs. It's just icebergs stacked on top upon icebergs, you know, gazillions of tons of ice. And that's all ice that is just breaking off the shelves faster than it ever has. And so you see that the ice is actually, you know, breaking off. And ultimately that's going to lead to rising water temperatures, but I don't want, say, someone in New York to start caring about climate change issues, you know, in 200 years from now when the water levels are rising and affecting them. We need people to start caring now. We need to take preventative action rather than reacting to uh, our own personal natural disasters. Paul Lincoln's latest book is Polar Obsession. It's a coffee table-sized book, uh, beautiful photographs, and uh, and uh, Paul Nicklin has done the text himself. Previous book is Seasons of the Arctic, with photographs by uh, Paul Nicklin, and you can see his work in National Geographic. Uh, the website is uh, paulnicklin.com. I wonder if I get you to tell me a couple of your encounters with, uh, with wildlife. Uh, and you can see, by the way, from your site, um, you have a link to uh, a, a little video you did uh, talking to the camera and uh, with some uh, photographs uh, of an encounter you had with a leopard seal. This is potentially a very dangerous animal and uh, quite a spectacular encounter you had. Yeah, that's pretty funny. I was just found, I mean, I did that in the geographic basement. They told me no one had ever seen this video. And then when my book came out, they posted it online. And I was not really happy about it because we didn't do a very good job on it. But it turned out that I think it was the number one two viral video of the year for YouTube. So that was, you know, apparently it, the story resonates with people. And, and what happened was, you know, you, you see happy, uh, happy feet and you see uh, eight below zero. And, of course, there's a villain in all these shows, and it has to be the leopard seal, and it's ten times bigger than it normal is, normally is, and it's this vicious monster. And so my job, again, as a journalist is to try and dispel myths. And so I wanted to go down to Antarctica and, and find out if this leopard seal was really as awful and vicious as everyone said it was. And I decided to get in the water with this seal. And tragically, a diver had been killed uh, the previous year down there in 2004 when she was doing underwater research. Uh, but I got in the water. I was, I was nervous. You know, I, there was, I'm, not, I'm not a foolish uh, you know, cowboy out there just 
cowboying up just to see what's going to happen to me. I guess I should be careful using that word in this part of the world, but um, got in the water and, and she did all her threat displays and she took my my head in her mouth and she took engulfed my camera and it was just, but she was never aggressive. It was sort of very gentle. And when you look at leopard seals, they don't have any scars on their body. They communicate. So she was communicating me with me, telling me how big she was. And then the most amazing thing happened. She stopped all the threat displays. She hung out with me for a little bit. And she went off and she got a penguin, brought it back, and tried to feed it to me. And I didn't accept the penguin. I just sat there in disbelief taking pictures. And she, she ended up doing this for four days straight. When I would go back to my sailboat to sleep at night, she would follow me to the sailboat and she'd wait. And when I'd come out in the morning, she'd be like a playful dog. And, and here we're talking a 1,000-pound, 12-foot-long um, animal that's full of teeth, and she would go off, and she could kill me instantly, but she would go off and get me more penguins, and so she just fed me for four days straight, and we ended up developing a, a very cool relationship. Uh, she was definitely trying to communicate with you? I definitely would have. At first, I was confused, and why would she be trying to feed me so penguins, so many penguins? But if you look at it through her eyes, she's never seen a human before. All of a sudden, there's someone in the water with her. She does a threat display. I don't take off. I keep following her around. So I think the next logical thing in her world would be that I'm hungry. So she offers me the penguin, and now I don't take it. So now she becomes really confused. And I think she just went into this re- repetitive loop where she just tried to give me one, one penguin after another um, just to see what I wanted. And, and every time she, I didn't take a penguin, she would eat them right in front of me. She would show me how to eat them. She would eat them slowly and gently and ging- gingerly, and she would rip them apart, and she would leave me dead penguins, part, parts of penguins, you know, multiple live penguins. I mean, she was uh, she was did everything in her power to feed me a penguin. Mm. She she saw you as an incompetent uh, predator and was trying to help you, I guess. I think she saw me as a very inept predator in her ocean who was going to starve to death, and she yeah. probably took it upon herself to try and save this this useless the useless being in her ocean. I like the the first part of the video where you describe uh, your guide uh, tells you, yeah, it'll be okay. Get in the water with this <laughs> with this large, potentially dangerous animal. I guess you just have to trust your, your guys at that point. Yeah, I mean, it's, he's the only person who's really spent a lot of time with leopard seals. And, you know, he says, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, I've been in the water, lots of leopard seals. Yeah, you'll be fine. But it's one thing to say that, and it's one thing to be sitting in a 12-foot-long zodiac and have a 12-foot-long animal that's bigger than your boat sitting right there, shredding a penguin in the water, and there's blood everywhere. And he's saying, yeah, yeah, time for you to get in the water, yeah. And, you know, meanwhile, there's a head of a penguin flying off, and, and the, the leopard seal was lifting up the bow of the boat. So it was, you know, my lips were parched. It was, I was terrified. I, you know, I had trembling lips, and I forced that snorkel in between my teeth and slipped into the icy seas. And, and at that point, you, you know, you're alone. It's just you and the leopard seal. There's no one, nobody can do anything for you at that point. But I also, I think I, it's the vulnerability of those moments that really appealed to me in the line of work I do, because you're, you're giving an animal a shake that otherwise wouldn't, wouldn't have a chance. And, and so it's, it, and it's what I do as, as a journalist as well. It's a story I want to tell, and you have to sometimes put yourself in those vulnerable situations. But we ended up getting in the water with 30-plus leopard seals and never, never once had a problem. I suppose you would advise people to be careful. Uh, you, you emphasize that you have to be very patient. You have to um, maybe spend days, weeks with an animal before they're comfortable to uh, come close enough so you can get the photograph. Oh, yeah. I'm not defi- definitely not condoning everyone just go out and do this. It's... You know, it's going on. My guide had <clears throat> 10 years of experience of getting in the water with leopard seals or being around leopard seals, and he is, himself has been attacked a couple of times, never bitten. Uh, but if you, if a leopard seal does not know you're there and you're standing on a piece of ice and it's just under the ice, they'll attack you in an ambush-style attack, and they'll come up and they'll sink their teeth into you. And this is where the attacks have happened. And and at that point, you're fighting, struggling to get away. So they just they keep dealing with your struggle, and they. They, they counter, and they try and pull you in the water and drown you. So at that point, you're in a dangerous situation. So you have to read every situation. You have to let the leopard seal know you're there. You have to get to know it. You have to read its behavior. And I've had leopard seals where I've had to get out of the water just because they were young. Um, they weren't confident. They were acting a little more erratic. And at that point, you're just like, okay, you're just a young guy. You're not sure of yourself, so we'll leave you be. And it's these big, confident seals are the ones that you want to find and get in the water with. One of the frequently asked questions that you post on your website is, and I'm guessing you get this a lot, can I be your assistant on your next uh, trip? And you write that, uh, well, it's not all fun and games. <laughs> well, it's funny. I've had uh, four, four emails this week for my upcoming story. People want to be my assistant. I, I and it's, it's one that I get all the time. And, and then my first question is, well, do you dive on rebreathers under polar ice? They're like, no, but, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a good writer and I can clean camera gear. And it's like, you know, when you're in these remote locations, you have 
very little room. Tough food is extremely precious, and so you want one person who can do it all. You essentially want someone who's a Navy SEAL, um, you know, is a, is a world-class diver. They understand rebreather technology because when you're really shooting, when things are really happening, it does, you might only get one good hour of shooting a month in these places. And when things are really happening and you want that person to be completely dialed in, you want them to be watching your back, it's no time to be starting to train an assistant. So it's, uh, you would love to bring everybody along because it's fun to watch their eyes and their, their, see how stoked they get when we're doing something really cool. But uh, it's, yeah, unfortunately, they need to be better than, than, I do, than I am at all the things that I do just because I need to focus on photography. And uh, why focus on the Arctic and Antarctic? I guess you could, uh, you could go to tropical places and be warm. Exactly. I mean, it's, it, trust me, it's my dream to, to shoot in warm places as well, and I have. But every time I go to a warm place, uh, I'm on a sailboat. There are 10 other sailboats down there. There's, you know, if I go to Alaska, there, we're standing shoulder to shoulder. If I go to Mexico to shoot the underwater caves, I'm trying to swim around all the other divers in the caves with their cameras. And if I go to the Arctic, I'm alone. You know, it's, it's cold, it's miserable, it's dangerous. And I think I have a moral moral obligation to shoot there, just because of my upbringing and being trained by the Inuit. I can, you know, if you take a photographer from New York, for example, and I'm sure picking on New York a lot, but if you take a photographer from New York and send them up there, um, they're going to spend 90% of their time just trying to survive and stay warm and just function. And if you send me up there because of my upbringing, I'll be spending 90% of my time being productive and shooting pictures, at storytelling images, and just 10% of my time eating and staying warm. If I'm whole, cold and if I'm hungry. Uh, I eat raw seal meat with the Inuit. There's, you just eat a, a pound of that, and you're warm for the next 20 hours, and away you go. And you just keep working. But if someone has to sit down and cook you a beautiful pasta dinner, which will only keep you warm for an hour, then you're eating up everyone's resources. So I just I feel like I'm obligated to work there, it's, and it's what I'm passionate about. It's what the area that I love most on the planet and it's a place that I really hope I can have an impact through my photography. I was just going to say, there, there must be some passion there. What, uh, why are you passionate about this area? I just think because I, I, I see the looks on the people's faces that I grew up with, my friends. Um, you know, I saw my first polar bear when I was five years old, and uh, it, just, it, it bit me really hard when I was a kid, this place. I never wanted to leave it. I, I had to go off to university in the south uh, in, in British Columbia, but I vowed to get back there as soon as I can, and I still live there. I've, you know, out of my 42 years, I've been there 30, 37 of them, and uh, I'm going to keep living there. I just mm-hmm. I, I can't get enough of the place. You live on Baffin Island, do you, or...? No, I live in the Yukon now, uh-huh. but it's, okay. I'm actually doing a story in the Yukon now, a uh, very similar story just to show people the habitats and what's there. And again, I find myself out there shooting alone with no one else around me just because everybody else is down shooting in the warmer climes. Mm-hmm. We're talking with Paul Nicklin, photographer. Uh, you see much of his work in National Geographic. I do want to hear another adventure. I, I was I'm reading of an inadvertent ride on the back of a bowhead whale. Tell me about that. I felt silly even writing that. I mean, all my stories are obviously true, but, you know, you, you start to think, people think, okay, Moby Dick, you know, where's he getting these stories? But when you're out there working alone, strange things happen. And I was waiting on the seashore of, of, this, of uh, Igloo, like a tiny island near Baffin Island, trying to get out and photograph bowhead whales. But we had storms, we had bad ice. And I tried for over a month to get out, and finally, one night, the ice moved away, and I, there was a little boat sitting there, and I went to a guide and said, let's go, and let's go look for bowheads. You know, it was 1 in the morning, it was sunny out, 24 hours of sunlight in the summertime there, and uh, everybody went to a town dance, everyone took off, and so I'm left alone, and I took this boat, got some gas in it, and I just disappeared into the night, into the fog, uh, drove 30 miles through the drifting pack ice, looking for that ice-solid flow edge where I'd hoped to find the whales. I got out there, and I couldn't believe it. As soon as I, I mean, it took me several hours of weaving through the ice in this little boat. And when I got out there, um, I heard, I shut off the engine. I heard all these blows, and I started to inch up with the boat, putting along slowly along the ice edge. And I saw whales just in front of me. And as I was driving up towards them, this large bowhead whale, probably 50 feet long, you know, one of the big 150-ton whales, second in size next only to the blue whale, started coming up underneath the boat. And I could see this black shadow coming up through the black water, the blowhole was in front of the bow, and then I looked behind me, and the, about 20 feet behind the boat was the tail coming up. And I knew that I was right on top of the back, and it was just about probably three, four feet below the water now coming up. And I just put the boat into neutral and froze. I didn't know what to do. I didn't want the whale to get excited. If it flipped me in the water, I would have, I would have gotten hypothermia and died. There was no one there to pull me out. And the whale just kept coming up to the surface. And now we're going the exact same speed. I think the whale knew I was there now, so he's paralyzed. 
but he's still coming to the surface. And finally, the just as the boat was starting, the bow of the boat was hitting the just behind the blowhole of the whale. I put the boat slowly into reverse, and when I did that to back off the back of the whale, he got excited and he flicked his back in the air and he lifted the boat in the air with his back, and then he sunk back down. And then when he dove, he flung his tail in the air and he put probably about three, four hundred gallons of water in this boat that almost sunk it. It just the way the lobes of the tail wrapped around the gunnels of the boat. And he dove, but I went up in the air a few feet and got dropped back down in the water, full of water now, got it up to the ice edge, was able to bail it out, but it's, uh, some things happen quickly like that. Uh, it's spectacular, very dangerous uh, encounter. And as a photographer, I have to ask you, do you, do you have enough time to think to pull out your camera and, and take any pictures at this point? I do. I mean, it's. I mean, that's always my goal, and and I, I think when you get to you get so passionate about shooting these images as images as I do. I mean, I wreck camera gear every year, and that's you know saving a camera is never your priority. Getting the, getting the images is always a top priority. But at that point, uh, you know, I didn't have a camera ready. I was they're sitting in their pelican cases on the bottom of the boat, and at that point, I was just trying to. I didn't have a dry suit on yet. And later that night, I fell through the ice while chasing a bowhead whale in a in a rotten hole in the ice where he had come up. And I was chasing him, and I was carrying an underwater camera in one hand and a surface camera in the other. And as I was running up to him, I fell through the sea ice, went underwater, had my dry suit on now, went underwater, but I raised my housing up in the air, the protected camera up in the air as high as I could, and I took the one that wasn't protected and dunked that underwater and ended up destroying that. So it made a, a bad judgment call there. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, we have lots of stories like that, yeah, de- unfortunately. Yeah, definite adventures. Uh, we just have about 30 seconds left. I, I wonder uh, what will we see next in National Geographic uh, from you? Well, i got to be very careful in how I say this, but uh, I'll give you guys a hint. It's going to be a bear, and it's going to be white. Okay, very good. And then you guys think carefully about that one. Well, maybe I'll give you another hint. It's not a polar bear. Oh, all right. We'll we'll look for that. Excellent. Paul Nicklin's website is paulnicklin.com. And uh, uh, Paul Nicklin, a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Our thanks to Paul Nicklin. That uh, conversation first broadcast in 2011. By the way, as I mentioned, uh, paulnicklin.com, and uh, Paul Nicklin is on Instagram, at paulnicklin. Thanks for listening to Access Utah Today. The Utah Debate Commission has organized debates for candidates in all of Utah's congressional districts, as well as uh, for candidates for Utah Governor and Attorney General. Utah Public Radio will broadcast each of these debates. The first is a debate for candidates for the 1st Congressional District. This is the race to replace retiring Republican Representative Rob Bishop. We'll hear a debate between Republican Blake Moore and Democrat Darren Perry on Thursday at 6 p.m. right here on Utah Public Radio.